real pleasure to be here. Uh, so I, just to say, I'm very much just going to share from my own experience working as a photojournalist. Um, I'm, I'm aware, um, as writers, you're probably regularly working with photojournalists and photographers. So just going to share my experience. And at the end, I'm looking forward to your questions. So I'm kind of going to do an overall, um, hoping to provoke um, a good time of a kind of Q&A that we can talk through issues in more depth. Um, so to start off, as Amira wonderfully introduced, I see myself as an investigative photojournalist. And I very much use the camera um, to kind of gather the evidence of the stories that I'm hearing. And I, I, I see my, when I work, um, for me, it's not just uh, getting the photographs, I, the research is just as important. I would say 80% of my work is actually research um, and then 20% is actually on the ground. Um, I have an overcommitment issue with a lot of my stories <laughs> um, in that I definitely work long term on projects and I'm very much drawn to issues which are uh, quite hard to tell in the sense of you can't just whisk in um, for a week and get the story and come out. It takes long-term building relationships and trust um, with communities and the individuals that stories I want to tell. So I'm going to start off just uh, sharing, just show you visually some of the work that I've done to give you an idea how I've worked. Um, this is from a story I did actually back in 2005 in the Philippines. It's called Kids Behind Bars. And I was able to get into four of the prisons in uh, around Greater Manila. And my aim was, I was actually, this was not commissioned directly from a newspaper. This was commissioned by an NGO wanting me to get in, to get evidence so, we could, so it could go into the media because they had spent years trying to change the laws in the Philippines and they just gave up because they weren't getting the kids out of the prisons. So I went in to get visual evidence. That was my whole aim. Um, and here is just um, evidence of the overcrowding. Um, this is Novartis gel, which uh, floods every single day. And my aim photographically was, yes, to get visual evidence of the overcrowding, um, the flooding, and also just to find that kids are imp illegally imprisoned with adults. And um, here are just some of the shots where there are under underage boys in this shot. And then just the, uh, the conditions that they live under, um, they are nearly all abused and suffer with skin diseases and just from the horrific environment of a prison. I mean, this for me is one of the most shocking stories I've ever covered. When I walked first into the prison, just the, the heat and the, the noise and the conditions were, in my opinion, quite... It was shocking for me, even as a photojournalist. Um, and here's one boy that we found um, who, uh, yeah, um, who was, he was 15 years old. Um, so I was able to get that evidence. Um, the other kind of big uh, project, um, just to talk about positive impact, I'm going to share with you the positive impacts of my work and also the challenges that I'm facing, especially today as a photojournalist. Um, with how imagery can actually be taken out of your control and just the ethical issues that I often am facing and working with uh, quite vulnerable individuals. So I want to talk through that in detail. But one um, positive thing about this story, which was amazing, is these pictures had such an impact 
I went in the week before film crew who took hidden cameras um, um, in a bag. I obviously had to get my camera out visually to get these shots, um, which I was helped with the organisation I went in with. Um, the impact of this is when this went out, um, we had 50,000 people call in to um, ITV News, also went on CNN, and it had a huge uh, political impact. The US Senate got involved, um, and I, that's when I, I would say it was my first kind of story where I saw the power of the image um, and the waves that it caused. And I would say this was kind of a pivotal moment for me in my career. I started my career at a local newspaper. I'm not from an academic background. So I started at a pro provincial newspaper at 18, then worked up to the nationals and then started working for international publications. So I, this was the first time that, yeah, I saw it really, I would say, I, I would say it was my switch becoming not just being a photojournalist, but I realised the power of it and I became an, an activist as well and to take responsibility of what I had witnessed. Um, so this was a very key story, hence why I kind of wanted to, sh to show this to you. And maybe that's something we can talk about a bit later about um, the, the photojournalism aspect and then allowing the images to be used um, for activism. Um, the, the big project, my over... <laughs> project was a story which was taken, which Mira talked about. I spent 11 years on this story. I didn't intend to spend 11 years. I went to Kamatipura in India, which is one of the biggest red light districts in Asia. Um, it's in Mumbai. And I went there first in 2002 to photograph a story of children born into sex slavery. And while I was there, I learned about um, I had started to hear the girl's story, and that's the first time I heard the term trafficking. No one was talking about it in 2002. And I started to learn that these girls were held in cages. And um, at the time, it was like, okay, and I started to interview the girls, and I basically repeatedly have gone back until 2013. Um, and talking about using the camera as evidence, the journalist, was, I was doing multiple interviews, and I started to see trends and patterns in their stories. And I realised that to tell this story well, visually, I need to go and get the visual evidence to back what the girls, what, the, what, I, was, what I was gathering in these multiple interviews. So I started to literally, my fixer was a former gangster um, and a family who were generations in the red light district and they opened up the secrets. It was a one in a lifetime access opportunity as a journalist. And I realised that, that this is a very rare opportunity and the importance that I had to, as the girls told me the stories, I wanted to go to the exact spots, find the exact cages they were held in, the exact brothels, and, and basically, yeah, to, to kind of visually map out their story. And that's what I've done, and I put together this book where it really goes into in depth into uh, uh, three girls' stories in total. Um, I'm actually going to play you a short video. Uh, the sound wasn't great going through the main system, so I'm going to play it through my com computer. But <clears throat> what was interesting, just with how things have changed, I started off as a photojournalist. With the DSLRs coming out, I started to gather film. I'm not trained, I wasn't originally trained as a filmmaker, but again, I realised the access I was getting. So one of the girls' stories that I started to follow was this girl called Goody. And I'm now going to play you, just so you can see visually what I was getting, um, just so you're aware, when you're looking at this film, be aware that most of this is shot with me hiding out at the back of brothels. Um, um, all the girls were aware what I was doing, but obviously the traffickers and the brothel owners were not. 
I went in undercover as a social worker, but very much um, I had full permission from the girls to show their identity. Um, it was just that, for, obviously, you can't say, hey, I'm uh, expose yourself to the traffickers. So I'm going to play you a film. And, yeah, just be aware, most of this sh is shot, um, uh, yeah, without the camera being openly displayed. Can you turn the lights on? I'm not going to do it. 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 I
stories that I covered and I'm, I'm happy to talk more in detail during Q&A about her story. Um, she's actually still, I've just got back from being in India, she actually still is in the red light district, um, which I'll explain, they've multiply tried to get her out but that's uh, the situation she's in um, due to the control of her pimp. Um, with this story, um, one thing that became very evident is um, the girls kept talking about the red light district being an open prison and um, just how visually uh, things become so symbolic. Um, one time I was invited to go up in a new build um, up in Kamatipura and um, when I got up to the top, and this is the whole of Kamatipura, it's made of five lanes, there's about 20,000 girls. When I shot this, this is now, um, two, this was taken, so this is five years old now, so I believe there's less girls now, but um, when I was there, there's 20,000 girls, women and children working in, in those lanes. Um, but just also just the importance of how you visually see something. And I saw a cage door, um, and hence why I shot it at this angle, um, and how symbolic that was. And then getting the evidence of a real cage, I knew that I had to get this evidence. Um, it took us years. Now, I first learned about these box cages that the girls were being held in. Um, there was a systematic, there's a systematic way the girls are brought into Kamatipura. They rape them to break them and then hold them in the cages until um, their spirits are broken, that they won't run away when they are out on the streets. So um, some of the girls are held for months, some of them years, uh, to the point that they actually can't see. When they enter back in the light, they can't see. Um, we have been trying to get deep inside, and this place is like a, um, a, a rabbit warren. And eventually, in 2010, I got the actual visual evidence of this cage after trying multiple times. Um, and I can go into more depth of how I did that. Um, but just the importance of, you know, that was eight years of trying to get that shot and trying to get that evidence um, uh, was really significant because people were still questioning it. Um, yeah, I was multiply getting it in the interviews and just that perseverance of getting that shot um, and the difference that that has made, that it, it, it validates the girls' stories. Um, talking on that, just going on, a, on to other stories, um, when I approach a story, for me, it's also the details that as you're writing, um, not forgetting those important details when I'm on these stories. So. I have spent years looking, I've been to I think eight countries now, looking at modern slavery and trafficking and you know when you're in the middle of, I've been on multiple raids or you're, you're in very tricky circumstances where I'm very restricted in what I can do as a photojournalist and just always keeping in mind I've got to get that, that visual evidence and I'm just going to show you just a few examples, there's so much work of just showing these shots that matter, 
So when your work has been, so this is actually in the jails in the Philippines. At first, when the story went out, the Filipino government denied that there were minors in their prisons. Um, and then we, if you see there, it states that there was 25 minors. So it was officially logged. Shots like this, actually, it's not the most amazing shot visually, but the importance of those details for that evidence. Um, again, here, this is on a raid. Um, I looked at trafficking uh, for tourists around the World Cup in South Africa. Um, this is a tally of, this was a Chinese mafia-run brothel um, in Cape Town. And just when the, you know, just being very aware when I hit that, when I'm in that place, seeing what the police are gathering. And this is just the visual tally of what they were charging each customer. 150 rand is not very much. That's basically 15 pounds. I don't know what the exchange rate is around now. But just so, and it, it gives you then visually an idea of, you know, the numbers that are coming through. But these are things that often, as photo journalists, often I find a lot of the training is about the beauty of a shot. And actually, I'm more like get the evidence. When I was with the police, just, um, and, and this is as well for me, I, on this story I worked alone, but when I worked with writers, making sure visually I get that colour, the details that the writer I'm working with is pointing out, that I really look for that. So if they've just, I've sat in an interview and the police officer is talking about, yes, we're, for this example, um, um, in South Africa, the police were talking, they, were, they had an issue at the time, they had no trafficking laws. So they had to use misuse of premises. So they had to prove that sex was being sold in this premise that was being fronted as a salon. So getting, you know, bins being emptied, um, those important details that always thinking like a journalist, not just trying to get that pretty, pretty shot. Um, and backing up and working as a team, and I'll, I'll talk a bit that more at the end, working as a team, I think, um, I was trained by a well-known journalist, a uh, photo journalist called John Downing, and he worked with an amazing writer called Danny McGorry that worked at the Times, covered most of the wars since Vietnam. And they worked for years as a team, and I've noticed as a freelancer, you're constantly put with new people. I sometimes have writers that won't collaborate with me, and it's like, yeah, you just go off and get your picture. And others, I find a lot of the old, uh, the, the old generation really know how to get the best out of a photojournalist. And the importance of that, of not working independently, but working together um, to build the story. Because um, you make the story better for each other. Um, and I think that's something that needs to be talked through more. Um, especially now with the kind of where there's not staff anymore and we're freelancers. And to kind of set that ground when you're sent on, a, on an assignment together. Um, oh dear, this is not totally sharp. Um, talking about code of ethics, I don't know if you're aware of this, but just to, some pointers for you. Um, the ethics of photojournalism, I don't, everyone's from different uh, countries here, I don't know if you're aware. World Press Photo have a great code of ethics. They're the leaders um, in terms of setting the bar um, on, on code of ethics. And this is for the competition, World Press Photo, every year. And I've brought this up just to say, please see this. Um, because they're, sometimes I've actually worked with writers as well, and they, they, they kind of want you to set up a shot. Um, the importance that you don't set up photographs, the importance that you're aware is your presence changing um, the dynamic um, uh, of, the, of, the, of the situation, of the story. And I'll go into that a bit more depth in a minute. But I just um, wanted to bring that up as, as this is kind of the code of ethics. And I've, I've noticed I, I run workshops for the British Council around the world. It really does vary. And in certain countries, photographers are actually taught to set up shots. Um, so it's trying to keep um, uh, that 
Um, not really, it's just ge generally not seen as a bad thing, not done purposely, which sounds odd, but making sure that you, you aren't setting up photos. It's okay to do it for portraits. Um, I wanted to then get a bit into some of the challenges I've faced um, in, as a photojournalist in losing control. So I've, I've come through the generation, I started off shooting black and white photography. I've come through the transition to digital to now just the advance of everything, um, just how you lose complete control of images um, on the internet and through social media. And I just want to share just some of the things that we can maybe talk about more in depth. For example, this photograph, um, just to share, I took this shot for a story for The Observer. This young boy is, I looked at homelessness of teenagers in the UK. He's a boy who's a, um, a, a frequent one, runaway. And um, I suddenly saw this picture being used by the NGO that allowed us access to do the story um, for, the guard, uh, for The Observer. Suddenly I saw it being used on their material saying he's a refugee. Um, and I've had that, and I could share multiple stories, I just want to show this, how that is completely wrong. And I had to go through quite a battle phoning this very well-known large organisation going, this is ethically not right. And how I have to even safeguard my photographs, which I find incredibly hard as a freelancer. It's hard enough to work as a freelancer and just get my stories done without having to trawl the internet and make sure my images are not being used inappropriately, let alone getting legal support. Um, but just the, how things can be misgrossly used and um, how that can actually affect the rest of the integrity of your work um, if you're using images um, as evidence. Um, so I just wanted to show an example of one of the challenges I face. Another challenge is recently, last year, a, an Indian photographer called Suva Datta suddenly confessed in Time magazine that he used my pictures to win grants with the Getty, £20,000 grants. Um, and... I still, to this day, don't know exactly how those images, what he did with them. Um, he was kind of, his, he can't work again as a photojournalist, but how even a fellow colleague misused my work and inappropriately used my work. Well, I was given trust from survivors. Um, and that's just something to really discuss, that um, I, when I safeguard survivors and I sit with them, it's very different from 10 years ago. I have to say to them, I will, I will honour our agreements, like... Um, Often with survivors, I will send them a rough edit before I send it to my editor, photo editor, so that they know visually what's going out. But I will say again, you know, you need to, like, getting um, everyone the mindset that once this has gone out on the internet, we lose full control. This could be used into a main and really making sure that I safeguard my subjects in that way, that they know um, and they think that through. And I feel happy that they, um, they fully understand that and fully aware of the risks. Um, we just had a, a recent situation. I did a story in The Guardian from my Taken work. I took one of the stories out of a girl called Latta. Story was published around the same time. It was over the same year my book went out. Amazing response. Uh, we had a video in the stills. The video had over 800,000 hits online. Um, all positive, all good. Um, everything was good, she was safeguarded. Four years later, just this um, September, I get an email um, from the people who, who look after her saying her life circumstances changed. Someone is misusing this video and it's now putting her in danger. Can you please pull this story? And, you know, this is a reality. I do not want this girl to come. This is four years later. And thankfully, I have a very good editor at 
The Guardian, safeguarded as important, the modern slavery section, they understand the risks, and we actually did pull the, the story. Um, but it's just taking responsibility of that, and uh, yeah, it's just the, it's the challenges I'm facing. I just want to show, I'm realising how quickly time is going, um, just some shots, how I visually approach um, doing stories. Um, with, now, with survivors, with anyone who's vulnerable, I have to make sure they fully agree that I show their identity. I can change names if needed, make sure I don't identify locations, all the usual things we work as a journalist, but I have to be so careful visually. And here I'm going to show you a mix of pictures, and I'll just describe them briefly. Of some of these stories are just as I'm going in, so none of this is set up. And then there's portraits, where I am doing a portrait, obviously, where I can direct the shot to hide their identity. And I just thought I'll show you some of my varied stories to see how you can see how I'm working in this way. So this is in South Africa. Um, this was raiding one of the brothels around the World Cup. This girl um, was a victim and became the main um, uh, individual in the story. So again, showing and trying also to make sure to capture the emotive. Um, going through. Um, here, again, another piece of The Guardian. A young girl came forward, she was trafficked when she was 11 in Sweden. Just showing her character, making sure I do it in a creative way. Um, it's, it's challenging as a, as a visual storyteller. Here, this is Congo, DR, um, DRC. Um, it was a story I did for the New York Times, uh, Rape as a Weapon of War. This ended up being page one. Uh, but, by the way, it wasn't meant to be page one. And this is an example of, it was meant to be far back, but because we worked together, I actually, the writer I work with, um, the picture pushed it to page one. So that's why I'm like, invest in your photographers. Um, because it, it ended up being that page one story. But again, her full identity, not, you know, it's done in a creative way, but this wasn't set up as well, but just getting that moment. Um, this was, I lived, this was actually a documentary project, not investigative, living in Bahrain. Um, I spent a long time, I was invited to Ashura, um, which is very rare as, as a non-Muslim to go to, and I was invited as long as I captured no one's faces. But again, just making sure how I do that and still getting that beautiful image which will capture the moment. And these are just some different shots. Um, these are sur survivors um, of trafficking in, in South Africa. Again, these were all approved. Just ways to do it um, in a dignified way. This is in the middle of a raid. This is actually a very strong shot. So um, we came in, the customers, there's a customer in this shot. When we raided this brothel, um, it was like it's out of a scene of the movie taken. There was drug girls in every bed. But again, shooting it away that you can see what's going on without fully identifying the girls and putting them at risk. And this is a survivor in Sweden, just creative ways. This is a story, this is actually one of my earliest projects where I had to hide identity. I looked at uh, the repercussions um, when um, there was the HIV crisis um, in Romania, when Ceausescu fell, and you had the AIDS babies crisis, I went back actually 15, late, 15 years later, because um, I learned that it became kind of a social crisis, and that the, the now teenagers, if anyone found out they had HIV, were being run out of their villages. And so I had to photograph them in a very responsible way. And to give this context, I didn't work on a writer with this, I actually wrote this as well. Um, I prefer working with a writer, 
But with this, um, I let them lead. Um, because it was a portrait-based story, I wanted to photograph them, which had context. Um, this girl would go to the forest um, to let all her kind of frustrations out. And also, but doing it in a way that you get a feel, the emotive feel of who she is, but without giving away her identity. So there's a few from this series of just how I've creatively did that. Um, and I can go into more details, just showing the relationships. Similar approach, this was the runaway story in the UK. Um, this girl actually is a runaway, was starting to be prostituted um, by local gangs. This was, I shot this back in um, 2005 and six, and basically um, this was uh, early days of Rotherhide, uh, the, Rotherhide, the um, Rotherham story, and that the girls were being um, groomed out of the care homes. So again, safeguarding the girl, so just showing some more examples, but showing the environment, the streets that she ran away in. Um, South Africa getaway, cre creative ways. Um, here, just thinking about girls' stories, one with the South African, um, this was survivors of rape, and this organisation, these girls actually wanted to tell their stories and speak to the media, they wanted their stories out, but to be done in a safe way. And I didn't want to re-traumatise them, so did a portrait series, but they allowed me to give me the exact locations of where they were raped, so I went back to photograph the scene, so you see the environment, not taking them, but they wanted me to go and see these places. So again, just going to photograph the scene of the exact location and trying to do that, and that's quite a provocative, um, powerful way of saying this is where this girl was raped, um, without any need to traumatise them. This was their choice, and what they, and they wanted me to go. Um, I did multiple stories, so I showed different, different scenes, again, protecting identity. Um, and again, the scene of, of, of where the rape happened. Um, I'm aware of time. I, I, oops, I am kind of covered quite a lot of issues. What I want to finish up on is just talking about um, just the issue of how my role can change a scene and also the importance of working as a team as a writer. So I want to briefly touch on both of those. I've touched on it already. But just being very aware, um, living and working in Bahrain and Qatar in the Middle East, I was spent um, months uh, in, with five families in Bahrain and Qatar. As a woman, a buyer and hijab would come off in the home. But because these pictures were going to be shown publicly, my position as a photographer, my role of photographer meant they had to keep the hijab on. And just being very transparent about that in the way I present the work, discussing that. But also it created a wonderful trust. There were no issues. Um, but also, of course, course that, it's just an interesting discussion to have. That's changed. That is not the natural setting. <laughs> um, as a woman, if I'm sitting home, um, as, you know, people will be relaxed um, and uncovered. Um, you know, and none of these shots are set up, by the way. This is just me literally spending days documenting daily life. Um, buyers when they were hung up at the end of the day. Um, and just, um, just to touch on the Goody film at the beginning, I, you notice that she was fighting the customers, it's because they had stolen money for her. And people often are quite disturbed by that because she doesn't look like a victim. But what's interesting that I was very aware of after spending months and months over years there, I'm very aware as a photographer, because I was openly shooting and the customer saw me, 
I, you know, he wasn't fighting back because I was in the room. And being very transparent about that, that's, you know, that had changed the dynamic of the room. And it's just something very interesting to talk through. Um, also, my objectivity as a photographer, I went in with a passion to tell the girls' stories. Um, my role as a woman, um, how I see as a woman and my view as a woman, these are all things that need to be discussed and talked through. Um, I'm very transparent when you spend a long time on a project. I think it's impossible for someone to be objective. If five photographers entered this room, someone may be drawn to photograph the men, someone would be drawn to photograph the women. But that's an interesting discussion. It's just I think there needs to be more transparency about that. Um, and no apologies for it. It's just that's, that's the line of the story you're taking. Um, and just to finish, because I'm aware of time, are we okay? Because I'm aware. Um, and so that I think, that, yeah, that's something to discuss. So yeah, especially in India, when I spent a long time, I'm, I was very aware sometimes my presence probably was protecting the girls slightly. Um, when they did come aware that I was there, they were very scared why this white girl was there and suddenly seeing me with a camera. Um, I just want to talk about finishing, about the importance of the relationship <coughs> with writers and photojournalists. I've been working 22 years now as a photojournalist. I've just turned 40. Please tell me I don't look that old. Um, and... I um, started at 18 in a local paper, and I've really seen, I really had bad experience with writers, and I've had amazing experience with writers. And actually, before I came to speak to you today, I actually phoned one of my writer friends who works for Politiken. We've worked together for 10 years to kind of just get her feedback on our relationship. And I just, I mean, this might be obvious, but I feel that this needs to be talked about more, because when I started my career, writers were collaborating, I felt, a bit more. It's really hard as a freelancer, as I said earlier, to suddenly work with people you've never worked before. I've had some bad experiences where literally I am treated like, yeah, just go and do your thing. Um, it's very hard to me. I'm a storyteller. I am a journalist. If you don't... Allow, I've been many a time not allowed to sit in on the interview. How on earth am I going to photograph that individual when I have no idea about their story? Um, I also, I always like to do, sit and do the interview first, so the journalist feels they've got everything. I always, before I set up, if I'm working with a new person, how much we agree on the time, respectfully, and often I have to hold my ground. Um, and just that you're not working independently, you are a team. And just speaking to my colleague, I said to her, what do you like as a writer? And she said to me, um, Lona said to me, she's called Lona Tiles, um, she said, well, Hazel, we, we covered India together because we actually went, I, I took, we went and did Kamatipura, um, uh, that story for Politiken. And um, she said, the thing is, and, and many other interviews together, she said, often, Hazel, when we're working together, I get so much colour to the story and I get my best quotes when you're photographing them. We're very clear that everything's on the record, so we're working as a team. And I think that's just really important. And also for me as a photographer, um, you know, four eyes and four ears are better than two sets. I have often had Lona go, did you see that? And I need that. And there's no pride in me, it, it, in the sense of when we, I have, we have a trust, and I don't get irritated that she's questioning my ability as a photojournalist. I'm grateful for those extra set of eyes. And I know that sounds something silly to point out, <laughs> but I just, it, sometimes I've had jobs that have been really hard and really difficult, unnecessarily, and probably haven't gone as well as they could have. And just to really, um, I would say, harness that dynamic. Um, and just also, just for mental health, um, going to war zones together, sh having shared experiences. Um, Lona herself shared with me, she did Kosovo 
uh, with, a, with a photographer and she was much healthier when she came back than she did it without a photographer. And she had awful PTSD when she came back and was very traumatized. And I've noticed as well, when I'm working alone, I'm really struggling. And when I'm working with a colleague and it's a shared experience, I'm, I'm just, I have someone to debrief. Fact check, did you get, did you get the same unction? Something felt a bit off. Um, yeah, so I just kind of, it's, I just think it's really important because it, it still shocks me to this day how I have to reset that often on assignments. Um, yeah, I think that's everything I wanted to cover. So I'm like far away and throw any questions at me. Um, hope you have a great discussion.